economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the bunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Luisa Turbino Torres. Luisa is an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science and the Center for Women, Gender and Sexuality at Florida Atlantic University. Earlier this year, she defended her PhD thesis entitled The Politics of Being a Soccer Fan an ethnographic perspective on feminist action around soccer in Brazil at the University of Delaware. Today, we will talk about gender and soccer fandom in Brazil. Welcome to the podcast, Luisa. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Cas. So the first question, as always, is what was the first sports team you ever supported? I would say that is the first and only sports team that I ever supported is Cruzeiro Sport Club. I'm from Belo Horizonte, Minas Gerais, which is the fifth largest city in Brazil. Growing up, there really was just two teams in the city, so the rivalry was very intense. My family has supporters from both teams, but most of them are supporters from Cruzeiro, and my dad is a fanatic supporter of Cruzeiro and has definitely influenced me a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, Cruzeiro is the original team of the real Ronaldo. Correct. Yes, it is. Who then went to my club, Pace Feinto. So second, what is your favorite political song? Yeah, I love this question. Um, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you more than one favorite song. And I'm going to justify by saying that any song is a political song for me. So my universe is much larger than from people that have a narrow perspective on what being political means. The first song is called I Know a Place by Muna. It's a queer band. They started writing this song right after the 2015 Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage. And they wrote to be a celebratory song to the queer community. But this song was released right after the 2016 Orlando shooting in the gay nightclub post. So it became an anthem for the safety of the LGBTQ plus community. And the other one is Prison Song by System of a Down, which is a criticism of the prison industrial complex, you know, the war on drugs and all of that. Although the band resists the label of being a political band a little bit, I think they're still very much a political band. So I'm going to go with those two. Perfect. And then finally, what is your favorite political book? Yeah, and again, I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to give you three of my favorite books, but they are from different genres, so that's how I justify. <laughs> In terms of academic books, I think my favorite one is Bananas, Beaches, and Bases by Cynthia Enloe. I actually have a signed copy of this book from a talk that Enloe gave at the University of Delaware when I was a grad student. It is a fantastic introduction to feminist international relations theory, really shows how gender matters in international processes. Fiction, my favorite book is... It's called Transcendent Kingdom by Yagiazi. It tells the story of this PhD student in neuroscience from a Ghanaian immigrant family and all of their struggles. You know, it brings a lot of reflections about how science, religion, addiction, grief, how all those things are intertwined and interferes with the knowledge production processes. So I really like that. 
And the last one, <laughs> not to be too much, but it's a nonfiction book called Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. It's a mix of a biography of Dave Starr Jordan, who was a taxonomist and became the president of Stanford University. But it's also a memoir of the author. So it's about, you know, reflection on taming the chaos of the universe and their own internal chaos and the meaning of sciences and how it is inevitably intertwined with who we are as a person, as people. So yeah, those are my three favorite books. <laughs> well, that's a rich beginning. So let's move to your PhD thesis. You describe it as a love letter. And I must admit, I haven't seen that before. You say that in part, it's a love letter to football, or as you are forced to call it now that you're in the US, soccer. How did your love affair with football start? Yeah, and I appreciate you noticing the love letter aspect very much. You know, when I started writing my acknowledgement section, it was very important to me to look back to the people that were a source of support and inspiration in doing this work. And it made a lot of sense to me to frame it as a love letter because of Bell Hook's discussion of love as a verb, love as love does, love as revolutionary. So looking at love as beyond the romantical, sentimental love, but understanding love as transformative, as a verb that challenges us in our private lives, but also in our civic lives. So it is in this sense that this work is also a love letter that recognizes the transformative potential of football. And for me, football was always about love. It is about family, about friendship, about community. But a lot of this love comes from my family. Now, there are probably thousands of aspiring political scientists who love both politics and soccer and who dream about making a career of writing about it. But like me, they also probably thought, I cannot do this because no one will take either my work or me serious. What made you decide to write your PhD thesis on politics and soccer? In other words, what made you persevere? I really like this question because I had a lot of people tell me like, oh, you cannot do that. How do you do research on that? What is happening, basically? And I really faced a lot of resistance in studying politics and soccer as a PhD student. I often say that political science is the most conservative of the social sciences. And I do really mean that. And doing this research Absolutely. yeah, really showed that that's the case. What I really like about this journey of getting to this research, of getting here, is that it was very slow, but very genuine. I started my PhD with a completely different idea about what I wanted to pursue. And it was in my international relations critical theory seminar. Plus discussions, I found myself understanding or illustrating a lot of these concepts or ideas through soccer, which was my own reality, since I understand myself as a person. And it was in that class that I wrote my first paper in the subject on soccer and international relations in Brazil or something like that. And that's how we started. But what really made me persevere and find value in pursuing this as a research project was having a supportive advisor. So Dr. Claire Rasmussen was from day one an enthusiastic of the topic and not only an advisor, but also other people around me, a supportive research community that value my perspective. In graduate school, I was surrounded by people doing incredible and innovative research in political science. 
And the more I embraced the idea, the more it became clear to me that there was something meaningful to be said about soccer and politics, and not a lot of people were talking about it. And one of the right. things that I love the most about my research is that no matter who I'm talking to, when I explain, oh, I do research about soccer and politics, they're going to have something to say about it, right? They're going to have their own perspective on how they understand this connection. And I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy having these conversations and hearing these takes from people on how politics and soccer are connected. You're right. This dissertation explores the idea that soccer is intrinsically political because it perpetuates relationships of power, such as gender, race, class, and sexuality. Now, following the questions you yourself address in your PhD thesis, what are the implications of using soccer as a lens to bring attention to power dynamics and systems of oppression? So in this work, when I talk about using soccer as a lens, what I'm arguing is that through soccer, we can understand larger things about Brazilian politics and Brazilian society. We can see how women in Brazil are using the resources that are available to them in their everyday lives to actively challenge and change their experiences in a traditionally male-dominated environment that has always been hostile to women and non-conformers in general. So one important aspect of this research is telling the story of feminist activism in Brazil to show how this activism around soccer is different, but at the same time is a continuation of previous activist experiences. And in doing that, I highlight some of the particularities of feminist activism in Brazil and how it is in conversation with a broader Latin American feminist movement. And with that, in my research, I was able to work on recovering some of the history and looking at how these groups are proposing new ways of being a soccer fan in a way that is more democratic, it is more inclusive and more diverse and safer for women to do so. So this research presents my narrative about how soccer and politics are linked together and how these efforts to democratize soccer are also about democratizing Brazil. That is, right. in my perspective, very closely related to what happened in 2013. So 2013 inaugurates a period of profound changes in the political conjuncture in Brazil. And you can't really understand contemporary social movements in Brazil without considering during 2013. And to me, it was almost ironic that the biggest and most impressive wave of public demonstrations that happened in the last 25 years were centered around a discontentment with soccer and with the World Cup, right? Which is, in theory, the way that Brazilians come together. And here, I think soccer became undeniably and very explicitly associated with politics. And I don't say that in a way of arguing that they were not linked before. They were. But after 2013, it became more explicit. And using soccer as a lens to look at that allows us to also look at the discourses that emerged at that time and how they were instrumentalized after that. And for the left, it became very obvious that there was a praxis crisis at that time, with the right wing being more efficient in occupying and disputing all kinds of political spaces in the country. So you have identified 17 feminist collectives around soccer in Brazil, of which you study three in particular. And you describe one of these groups, simply named Grupa, 
as, and I quote, a collective of Atletico Mineiro fans united against machismo, racism, homophobia, and every kind of discrimination in soccer. Can you tell a bit more about the history of Grupa, how it emerged, who its activists are, and what they have achieved? Grupa was one of the groups that I had the most close contact with. And it is uh, ironic to me that it is a group of supporters of Atlético Mineiro, which is the biggest rival of my own team. But the rivalry here is very secondary because I'm a true and profound admirer of the work that Grupa does. So Grupa started back in 2016 after the fashion show hosted by the Atlético Mineiro Club to launch their jerseys for the season. And there was a very significant difference between the way that women were portrayed in the show versus how men were portrayed in the show. So when men were presenting the uniform, they were all dressed up in the professional uniforms and women were, you know, wearing just bikinis with, you know, some part of their body showing the symbol of the club. And that really bothered women fans. They felt objectified. They felt like it was reinforcing this idea that women belong in soccer spaces just to appeal to male entertainment, just to serve as male entertainment. So they came together online, they found each other online, and they were able to write a letter, you know, basically being like, hey, we don't agree with that. Something has to change here. And that's how Grupa is started. And if you look at the fashion shows after that one, you see a significant difference between 2016 and 17 and 18 of how women were walking down the catwalk. So I would say that that was the first immediate achievement of Grupa. But today they are more active than they have ever been and occupying not just the digital space like they did initially, but also the physical space by going to the stadiums together and creating a safer space for women to be soccer fans. In much of the world, feminism is at best a controversial term. And a lot of women who objectively could be called feminist, shy away from it. I assume this is not different in Brazil. So how common is it for women groups to self-identify as feminist and how controversial is that within the pretty machismo world of soccer? Yeah, Brazil is definitely another exception. Feminism and being a feminist is still very much a loaded term and there's a lot of misconceptions about what feminism actually is. So what I would say about that is that women around soccer, they organize in different ways. So there are two main kinds of groups. One is women-focused groups. They are more interested in participating in soccer the traditional way, but as women. And you have more of this feminist collectives, which are groups that are actively trying to change the way that you can be a soccer fan, the traditional way of being a soccer fan. For the women's group, the one that are not necessarily invested in profoundly changing the soccer spaces, a lot of them shy away from the label of feminists. They either don't understand themselves as feminists or they don't understand the work done by the groups as feminists. But for the collectives, which is the one that I rely more heavily in my research, they don't. They are explicitly feminist. They have their own articulation of what feminism is and what feminist practices is to them. Actually, if you look at their logos, all of them incorporate the female symbol, which became a symbol of feminism. So it's a huge part of their identity to be a feminist group. And many of them, an intersectional feminist group that is not only 
concern about women, but other intersecting identities as well. Maybe we can speak a little bit about it because the concept of race is very different in Brazil than in the U.S. The U.S. has this binary about race, whereas Brazil has a much more gradual interpretation of it. Now, of course, Brazil, as most Latin American societies, are very unequal, and in Brazil, also racial. How do these feminist action groups deal with issues like race or sexuality, for that matter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is definitely part of their agenda and what they want to explore and part of the work that they do. And that's very explicit, right? So they do a lot of protests or activism around racism in the stadium, for example. If you look at their social media, you're going to see a lot of that. They do a lot of work in bringing like sexuality discussions into soccer. Soccer is a very homophobic space in a space where, you know, gay men are not tolerated and gay women also go through a lot of discrimination. So they do a lot of work of bringing those discussions to soccer. But I think articulating intersectionality and really thinking about how they do their work is something they're still trying to figure out, right? So even though they explicitly talk about racism and they talk about LGBTQ plus issues, they're figuring out how to best incorporate that into their praxis. And one of the concerns that I had with this research was that I was going to be talking about your average middle class white women experience, right? Because that's mostly who has access to the stadium in big cities. And I found that that was not the case. But it is true that people from the periphery or from the favelas, when they're part of this activist groups, they have a different experience. So they have this almost obligation of bringing issues of class to this discussion that these groups are having. Of course, just like the U.S., Brazilian society has become very polarized, and particularly around the person of Jair Bolsonaro, who is not only a famous authoritarian, but also a famous misogynist. How has the rise and rule of Jair Bolsonaro affected the climate in and around Brazil's soccer stadium? So that was something that I was hoping to gain more perspective on doing my in-person field work that never happened because of COVID. Because personally, I haven't been to a stadium since 2016, which the political conjecture was completely different back then. But esteeming from the participants' perspectives, it became more tense, more confrontational to be in the stadium because of Bolsonaro's rhetoric. Resisting his administration became a central part of most of feminist organizing, including the work of these groups in the stadium. And, you know, the stadium is a space in which violence tend to emerge, right? The tension is very high and it became even more dangerous with this confrontational politics happening outside the stadium as well. And I think Brazilian society as a whole became more explicitly intolerant to nonconformers, to anything outside the status quo, right? And that is also reflected in soccer spaces. For sure. Now, Bolsonaro has prominent supporters among soccer players, and it comes as little surprise that soccer players are not among the most progressive and revolutionary. With regard to these feminist collectives, have they received support from within the soccer world, players or club owners, or have they received mostly pushback? 
Initially, so most of these groups start to emerge in the post-2013 context, right? And initially, I would say that a lot of them faced resistance from the clubs, from the supporters, from the players, from everywhere. But it was kind of like their persistence that started to give them spaces to be heard. And I think that's partially because of the evolution of feminism in Brazil too, that started to dispute more spaces and gain more spaces in Brazilian society. But more recently, which is something from the last three years or so, the clubs started to be more open to discussions about gender in soccer, right? So since 2019, for example, every soccer club in the first division in Brazil must sustain an equivalent women's team. So it creates this context in which the women role as a soccer fan is started to be discussed and the clubs kind of started to open the doors for the discussions and recognizing the work that these groups have been doing. But in their experiences, when I talked to the participants that were in these groups when they were created, it was a complete silence from the clubs, right? Like it was not, it was not always like that, but more recently it became easier to have those dialogues and those conversations with the clubs, they are hearing them in order to create policy in the stadiums to make the experience of women better. Now, despite the fact that it gets better, of course, soccer remains a very men-dominated sport. What are some of the institutional hurdles for women in Brazil to both play for and support soccer clubs? Women's soccer is extremely devalued in Brazil, right? It was only 43 years ago that it became legal for women to play soccer in Brazil. It was forbidden by law between 1941 and 1979. And that doesn't mean that women didn't play soccer. It was just legally not allowed. So in terms of play, the lack of investment is the main hurdle. And you will find a lot of women players talking about this or calling attention to that. There is a famous market interview after losing a game in the World Cup where she points that out, right? Like you're expecting us having all this pressure to win the World Cup, which we never did. But if you actually look at the situation of women players in Brazil, it's not there. The investment is not there. And in terms of like being a soccer supporter, people in general face hurdles to access the stadium in this neoliberal soccer context that we live these days. But women face additional challenges, considering that it is a very hostile space for us. And the two main hurdles, I would say, is the lack of company to go to the stadium, right? And the lack of safety. So it's not safe to go to the stadium by yourself or even like in groups of women. I have myself experienced harassment in the stadium, which is not a um, common occurrence. But part of the work of these feminist collectives around soccer is not letting it be normal. So although it's not uncommon, they're calling it attention to it and not letting it be normal. So women need this extra layer of awareness to protect themselves when they go to the stadium, which is not unlike other spaces in society where women are more vulnerable to harassment. Absolutely, and undoubtedly also an issue outside of Brazil or Latin America. Interestingly, as far as I know, not something that's discussed that often in the European context, where there are increasingly queer groups that are trying to make particularly soccer stadiums a less hostile environment. 
Now, one of the research questions that you pose in your PhD thesis is what is the significance of activist movements that are not seeking institutional policy change, but rather focus on conscious raising and culture change? And I really like that question as it looks beyond the narrow scope of politics in mainstream political science, which generally focuses on institutions like parties and parliaments and governments. That's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. So what did you find out? Yeah, so I see this work as a contribution to redefining and expanding our understanding of activism that includes groups with practices based on personal experiences that go beyond institutional politics and incorporate mundane, everyday activities such as being a soccer fan. So this like you mentioned, shows the importance of activism when the state as an institution is not central to their organizing. The goal here is not to change the state, but rather is to achieve a cultural change. So I present a more decentralized activism that operates in different locations, but is centered around soccer. But not focusing on institutional policy change does not mean that this change does not happen. They happen and the groups are somehow contributing to them, right? So, for example, like I mentioned, since 2019, every soccer club in the first division must sustain a women's team that was definitely coming from pressure from the public, including these groups, to provide more incentives to women's players. So it's not that policy changes are not happening is that their immediate goal is not that, is to change their own experiences in going to a stadium and make it safer for them to something that is important to their identity and their political practices to do, right, to go to the stadium. Finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the relationship between feminism and soccer in Brazil and beyond? Yeah, so I analyzed a lot of, you know, social media posts and, you know, tweets and all of that. And the most common comments of people that were against their action was this idea that it has always been like that. And that was confirmed by my interviewees. But that is simply not true, right? So soccer from the beginning has been embedded in gender and race and in class and colonial discourses. But the modern soccer that we have today is very different. And when you look back at the history of the game, you see that women had a very central role in popularizing soccer and growing soccer in the country. So while today soccer became a space for the reaffirmation of, you know, male dominance, and the inferiority of female bodies and female abilities, it was not always like that. And what I think is interesting about a lot of this is that the word in Portuguese for supporter, which is torcedor or torcedora, come from the verb torcer, which means to twist or to wiggle. And it comes from that because it was a habit of the fans to twist their handkerchiefs while watching the games to encourage their groups. And the fans doing that were the women in the East So even the word in the language for being a soccer fan comes from the women's experiences at the beginning of the sport in the country. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Luisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You can follow Luisa Turbino Torres on Twitter at at Turbino Torres. Her PhD thesis, The Politics of Being a Soccer Fan, an ethnographic perspective on feminist action around soccer in Brazil, 
will become available on ProQuest in the not-too-distant future, so keep your eyes out for it. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of 3D